ready for the interview And if you get a cue live on the laptop Watch what I'm gonna do Welcome to the show Let them know we got a point of view Hey, yo, let's have a combo Say what you feel, be real That's the motto Real talk, pronto Doctor D, PhD, hit the intro Hold up, wait Gotta be social Network global A home for the locals Gotta be social Network global A home for the locals Recording is in progress, and this time with Natasha Miller. How are you? I'm good. Really good. Thank you for joining me today, and uh, your story seems pretty amazing. So I like to do a little bit, it's kind of did the way back machine. <laughs> and what happened on the way back uh, all these years ago that helped kind of spur you on to where you are now? Well, unfortunately, what happened were some pretty negative things, and I... I really don't know where I would be today if those negative things didn't happen, but I have to say in advance that if I had to do it over again, I would choose to have been treated better and cared for and felt safe than um, enjoying and experiencing the incredible life I have now. Um, so I, I, I'm not one of those people that say, if I had to change anything, I wouldn't do anything different. Yeah. Because I, yeah no. So yeah, I grew up in the mid eighties in uh, the middle of the country. So two middles that didn't really work out for me. There wasn't access to um, help and mental health uh, assistance. There was no Oprah, no Dr. Phil, uh, none of those trailblazers that helped normalize challenges that human beings are going through. So I was stuck in a rut. Uh, of, of living in a very dysfunctional and um, abusive household. But I wiggled and scratched and clawed my way out of that hole and, you know, just kept plugging at it forever, even now to get to, you know, the things that I want to do and accomplish. So let's go into a little bit, let's elaborate a little bit. So tell me a little bit about what was mainly the dysfunction and how you talked about not wanting to go back. And a lot of people do say, oh, I wouldn't change it. It hardened me. Maybe the person I am and maybe what was what was so bad? That I wouldn't wish that it? upon anyone. And I think with my own daughter, I would not want that experience for her. So uh, abused mentally, emotionally, mm -hmm. physically by my mother. Um, my father was not abusive to me at all, but he also... I mean, complicit is too strong of a word. Mm. He wasn't able to find it in himself to stop that madness. And, you know, I have two little brothers who were witness to this, but also um, probably endured their own form of abuse of having to watch it. But also, you know, I was gone at 16 and they were four and eight years younger than me. So mm. I don't really know what they endured. What, you know, sometimes, well, a lot of times you hear this about kind of the male aspect of this and the abuse and stuff. It sounds a little different for me uh, from a woman. I just, you think of this nurturing person, the mothering figure. What was your mom like? And, like, and why can you surmise like that she would do this? Um, you know, since writing the book, revelations have been coming out about truths and secrets have been, are being revealed. And the, closed locked doors are being opened. 
So I now have a better picture of why she is the way she is. But even if I knew that as a young girl, I don't know how much it would have helped. As an adult, I understand more and I'm empathetic. And, um, but as a child, there's no, there's no rhyme or reason as to why somebody's hurting you. It doesn't matter why. So how has your, I mean, has your relationship evolved with your mother throughout the years or what has that been? You like? know, off and on, um, there were positive communicative times, but I have recently discovered or realized that having her in my uh, life is not good for my mental health um, and no one else is really in the family. So I've chosen not to be in her realm and it's been so much better. So I'm proud of that decision. It was not an easy one to take, but it was absolutely the right one. Was there a particular moment when you said this has to stop and I need to move on from this? Well, let me just admit to you, there were a couple of moments. One uh, where she reacted to something and started acting out uh, on me, but not only me, my, my two brothers, which, you know, if somebody's hurting my brothers, it's almost worse if you're hurting me. But two, this is the sad part. Um, the sadder part is that I think it was two years ago, my daughter, who would have been 24 at the time, looked up at me with this pleading look. And she said, mom, you don't realize it. Your mom is still abusive to, to all of you. And I thought, well, shit, that, that was pretty intense. And it took me aback. So instead of remaining in it, I removed myself from it. It's interesting that your child told you that. Oh and yeah. The, from the mouths of babes, right? On some <laughs> level. <laughs> How did that affect your relationship with your daughter growing up like that? Oh, well, in general, um, you know, I was terrified that I was going to treat her un not well. I really thought that I was going to have that anger, hatred, abusive feeling toward her because it's all I knew. And I was 24 at the time that I was pregnant and I went to a therapist and after three sessions, she did the most amazing thing for me. Now, whether she knew it to be so, or just knew that I needed to hear this, I'll never know. I don't remember who it was, but she said, Natasha, you're not going to hurt your child. And I just believed her. And I walked out of that session and I knew for sure that I wasn't going to abuse my child. And I was an excellent mom. I was a little different than the other moms. I may have overcorrected in the attention and love and, uh, all of that, but not to a degree where she's dysfunctional. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? I mean <laughs> she's not super spoiled, but emotionally she's spoiled because mm -hmm. I remember her saying to me when she was in high school, she yelled down from the steps. She was writing a paper and I had previously asked her to read it and I was talking to her about it. And she said, mama, 
none of my other friends' parents want to know what they're writing about. They don't really care. <laughs> and you really do. And I think that was a compliment. I don't think she was trying to <laughs> get me out of her hair. <laughs> it feels like there's almost this uh, generational shift in parenting, you know, throughout, yeah. you know, I feel that like people, I'm 43 and my daughter's 10. And it feels like that today's parents are, uh, are just more attentive to their children. Hopefully. Like when I was in the eighties growing up, I mean, my parents are awesome, but there were like stretches of like nine, 10 hours where I don't think they knew where we were most days. Like we're just out you know, riding bikes. You know what? Stuff. That's interesting. Cause in a healthy household, if you're in a very safe neighborhood, you know, back in the day playing yeah. in the Creek and running around the neighborhood until the sun was about to go down. Yeah. I mean, there's something cool about that. I agree. Yeah. Like who lets their kids do that now? <laughs> I don't know, man. It's a different world. It's a different world. You'd be like, well, what type of parent are you? You're letting your kids just stay out all times of the day and stuff yeah. like that, <laughs> you know? So let's talk about after you left home or after that portion of your life, what was life like for you at that point? I left home at 16. I was, um, it was Christmas day and my mother was on a, another tirade and she was chasing me around the house with a butcher knife and threatening to kill me. And although she had done similar things to me my entire life, I felt this imminence of harm. I also must have had some newfound cor courageousness and bravery. <laughs> and I finally called 911 and the police came and eventually was taken to a homeless youth shelter. And uh, after that experience, I lived with my grandmother for a time, but then shortly after that, I've been on my own since um, working full-time as a hostess at a restaurant because I was not old enough to serve food. <laughs> yeah. What was that period of your life like when you were on your own? I mean, it was confusing. I was acting as an adult. I was acting, I was acting in, and with people that were 10, 15, and 20 years older than I was. And, you know, I was in, a, in the restaurant industry and that's very social and that a lot of people go out drinking after work. And I had to navigate that world as a, a very young girl. And, you know, I, I was, I grew up too fast. Thankfully, I didn't really, you know, like I basically pretended to drink I've never had a taste for alcohol, thank God. Um, so, you know, I'd order back then it was Cosmopolitans, so embarrassing, um, <laughs> or Amaretto Sours. Mm -hmm. And I would sip on them and pretend to drink them. And, you know, if push came to shove, I'd go to the bathroom, pour it out and order another one to just seem like I was participating. I didn't have the confidence to say, no, thank you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was always a struggle. I remember, you know, I can't remember what my rent was, but I remember the landlord knocking on my door and me running around looking in different pockets of my pants and jackets and drawers for the, you know, $1 and $5 tips to put together enough to pay rent, most likely one to two weeks after it was due. So, you know, the responsibility that comes with living on your own at that young age. I mean, it's hard that kids are responsible for their own homework, right? <laughs> and their own um, 
games and practices, much less paying rent and utility bills and going to a job. And so you were living by yourself at this point. Mm -hmm. And what did you think about your future sitting there? You know, you're in your place, you're going to work. What kind of future did you think you were going to have? I really wanted to be a performance artist. So I'm a jazz vocalist. I'm a classically trained violinist. So I knew that there was hope for me. Uh, I did have some talent and I definitely had some gusto and I had a lot of passion. So for my career, I figured I needed to get out of Des Moines at some point. And um, my heart and soul was to go to New York and maybe be on Broadway, which is pretty funny since I don't act and I don't dance, but it's okay. Dreams don't have to be, (laughs) you know, like seriously relevant to your abilities, but um, I ended up coming to California when I was 24 and my life really began to erupt then in a positive way. And the inklings and the startings of that eruption began in Des Moines, um, you know, as I was playing violin and singing for social and corporate events and working, not just, you know, the restaurant jobs, but I would even take on like manpower and Kelly services work, handing out flyers to people, you know, risking my reputation by being, you know, the annoying girl handing out flyers. And I remember seeing someone that I knew in the Des Moines, um, we have these catwalks throughout downtown because of the winter. So there's like a mile of catwalks from Mm -hmm. like the third or fourth floor of all these business buildings. And someone was like, what are you doing here handing out these newsletters? And I'm like, I am getting out of Des Moines. That's what I'm doing. Is that, is that a thing in Des Moines? Is it like people trying to leave or it's like, well, you're strange if you're trying to leave? What's the mentality there? I think in general, people that grow up there, um, when I grew up there, especially, I couldn't speak for now. Um, you know, they're family oriented. They kind of go with what's given to them or what's expected of them. There's not a huge amount of uh, pushing forward. That doesn't mean that no one has from Des Moines or from what the high schools I went to, but um, most of the people I went to high school with, I graduated with 360 people, I think that's right, um, are there or okay. somewhere in Iowa with a family and some Sounds, of them may have the same job that they've had since, you know, graduating. <laughs> right. Sounds fairly typical in places like that. I mean, I grew up in a military family and we lived all over the world and we had a stint in like Kansas and uh, different places in the Midwest. And it was always like we would get there and we were definitely the outsiders. You were like, what is going on? What's here? this strange environment where everybody grew up together? Yeah. And it, it feels like it's just this constant stream going towards the same place, you know? Yes. And uh, it's, it's comfort. very interesting. It's comfort. Yeah. It's very interesting. There's places like that all dotted all throughout the United States, you know, not a horrible thing, just no, not no. a thing for people that are motivated to do more and more and more and always learning and growing and pushing themselves. Is it hard to kind of overcome kind of getting out of the gravity of that planet of, you know, when everybody was, else is not? Kind of yeah. Thing? I mean, the first couple of years of living in San Francisco, I was trying to de-farm myself. Now, did I live anywhere near a farm or on a farm? No, 
but that's what I thought everyone thought of me. I thought Mm. as soon as I say I'm from Iowa, they're going to immediately, and actually a lot of people did, oh, did you grow up on a farm? So I dyed my hair blue right here. Uh I got a belly button piercing. I was trying so hard to become much cooler than, you know, I thought I seemed. Did you? I mean, it worked for a minute. Right. Right. What is interesting, the viewpoints that people have of places, and maybe a lot of those people in San Francisco had never been to Iowa. Oh, yeah, mostly. Probably not, right? Yeah. I mean, right. so they, what's their association with Iowa? Something they saw yeah. on TV. It's like, oh, I mean, there is a decent amount of farmland. And stuff. There's <laughs> and, a lot of farmland. I mean, there is. I grew up in Des Moines, which was 350,000 people at the time. It's much bigger, I think. And I mean, there wasn't a cornfield in sight. We had to go a half hour to farmland. Yeah. Or more. So what was that like being in San Francisco? And which is, you know, it's a crazy place. Like it's, <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, it's like the it's city. It's so crazy. That yeah. first year I went down into the Castro, which is our mm-hmm. um, LGBT, uh, you know, LGBT plus yeah. area. Um, and every Halloween back in the day, they had these huge parties with drag queens and people barely dressed and also people dressed in the wildest outfits. And I remember this year they had all these rolls of bubble wrap on the ground so that when you walked, you would hear the pop, 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 pop. Mm-hmm. It was just one giant party. And I mean, can you imagine coming from little old <laughs> Des Moines, Iowa, come into this scene, especially with um, a bunch of you know, a a huge gay population. There were gay, there was a gay population in Des Moines, but it couldn't be as overt. No way. Right. And so I hadn't witnessed in person experienced being around that. And I was just like, oh, wow. (laughs) That was one of my first experiences or my first memories. So interesting, right? Like you were in this tiny place, small place, and then you expanded your horizon mm-hmm. and you saw these different things. It's like mind blowing. And I always think that's a partially what happens with a lot of people is they just don't have the exposure. Yeah, it's important and, for that know? exposure. Yeah, I mean, I listen, exposure to other countries. I have been in cultures. I've been to Italy before, but I just got back from two weeks of being there. And I'll tell you what, learning about the lifestyle and what's important to that whole country and and the preservation of ruins and history, Uh, but also, you know, you know, it was um, a shock to me. The shock was there were no homeless people, no encampments, Mm. no needles on the ground, nobody coming down from a meth bender. And I was like, where is everyone? Because I'm surrounded by that. But I love where I live. But it was an interesting juxtaposition. Of course, you know, there's a little bit more socialism happening in social Mm -hmm. care in Italy. And I don't know where those people are, right? I don't, it may be a horrible situation. I haven't looked into it. You know what? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is just when you take the time to go outside of yourself and you become uncomfortable and you really see what life could be like 
that's when you start growing. And that's mm-hmm. when things start changing. And that's when you start seeing other people in a very human way. When it happens. Yes. I mean, I came to San Francisco. It was hard to adjust for the first year. But then as I did become adjusted, I was like, okay, I want that. I want that. I don't want that. Right. So how can I get these things and avoid these things? And what kind of maneuvers or moves do I have to make to get to where I want to go? What lessons did you learn in, as you were coming of age? You're in your 20s. You're, you now you removed a decent amount of time from Des Moines, Iowa. What did you start learning about yourself that you didn't know mm. when you were growing up? Well, I, I think because I wasn't taken care of properly, mm. that I was always looking for someone to save me and take care of me. And I found a man who was nine years older than me in Iowa, who was an architect, who I thought would be that person. Now, I still had dreams and I wanted to do things for myself. But what I didn't realize is after we married and had our baby and a couple of years passed and things weren't working out, um, I didn't realize my ability to out earn him at such a young age. And we did have um, a child support and alimony agreement. It was very unofficial. We barely had any money, but he was paying me some alimony and child support. And after I got this job at an ad agency, and then I got a bump in salary, I was making more than he was. And there was such pride in that and, and surprise that I went to him and I said, listen, I'm, I'm good. I don't need the alimony. You can still give me child support for, you know, we're sharing Bennett's care. Um, and so that may have been a turning point of me realizing that I didn't need anyone to take care of me, yeah. financially at least. How about on the other aspects of things like emotionally and socially? Where were you at at this point? I mean, seriously, I was just always looking for someone to love me and, mm. and to fill in the holes of the family that I didn't have. And that did not serve me terribly well. You know, some decisions and choices and people um, weren't great. And I would say it's mostly, you know, my choices versus they're horrible people. That's mm. not, you know, in hindsight, I can say that now yeah. better, right? <laughs> I was attracted to the wrong things and I needed the wrong things. Um, I am now, unfortunately, so independent. I'm practically undateable at this point. So I've over really? again, another, you know, overcorrection. Um, but we'll, we'll see. I'm, but I, I doubt myself now because of um, those intrinsic, those inherent things that I'm not sure I can combat. Do I still need, do I still feel like I need someone to love me or to take care of me in order for me to feel fulfilled? I don't want to rely on somebody else. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of your life has been kind of, it's the, the, the pendulum swung one way and then it swung the other way oh, yeah. really hard. And there wasn't a middle ground in there. I don't know. I don't, I also think maybe the middle ground isn't terribly interesting to me. So I have <laughs> a lot of growing to do still. Of course. Like, I'm very well aware of that. And I'm looking forward to the challenge and, and the things that I'll learn. When you say the middle grounds may not be that interesting to you, what, what do you mean by that? Like, what's the larger 
meaning behind that? I mean, it sounds maybe, I guess, kind of obvious, but maybe not also. like You know, as far as relationships are, are concerned, you know, I see people and you can never know what's going on inside of somebody's relationship if you just see them out and about. Of and, course. And even if you just hear one side of their story, right? But the people that have been together for years and years and years and years and, you know, barely talk to each other at an outing or, you know, are on the phones when they're together the whole time. That's not terribly interesting to me. No. So I don't need, you know, a space heater. <laughs> I don't need a space heater. That's a good quote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, it's interesting. You say you're growing. Uh, I, you know, I talk to crazy amounts of people, 400 plus people on this whole podcast have done. And I just, I've had several dating app people on. I just find <laughs> the whole thing very crazy and interesting. Yeah. I've been married for almost 18 years. It's been wonderful. Honestly, for you. totally true. It's been wonderful. But I, I am interested in like how people date in this current yeah. age. Anyways, this one guy, Tal Slaninsky, he created this app. It's called Our Love. You may want to check it out. It's <laughs> really good. It's like, actually, you don't even need to have a partner to do it. It does. It's just, it could just be for you or for you and your partner. And it basically uses all of this research and technology to help you become a better partner to someone. That's a, that's a great, useful app. I've been using it and I feel like things are great. And I was like, man, this is awesome. Like, this is like step-by-step step how to become a better partner to potentially someone, or you could do it with your partner. I don't know. I just thought about that. I was yeah. like, I don't know. If I figure I'm meeting all these people, I might as well tell other people about certain things I find <laughs> out about. Why not? <laughs> you know, um, but it's, uh, it seems like that, uh, why would you want to have a relationship where it was just very dull and it was very uninteresting? And I think a lot of people end up staying in those type of relationships over time, yeah. over this kind of almost scarcity mentality of, well, I don't know if I'll find someone or they're afraid to be alone. Right. And in my case, a couple of times, you know, I broke up with people that it broke my heart to do it because I, I knew I'd be hurting them. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to put off that pain as far, as long as I could, but then it was worse for me. So yeah, to be continued, we'll see. Yeah, for sure. What I come up with. <laughs> How did, uh, so let's go through some of your work life here as things started progressing. I mean, you're working super hard, working different types of jobs and stuff. How did things start progressing to get to where you currently are? How did that dream start building? You know? Well, I had entire productions, which is my core business since 2001. And it really was more of a lifestyle business. It, it paid for my lifestyle, which wasn't extravagant, but it there wasn't an idea, nor was there the money to hire other people and expand. In 2013 through 15, I started having the mindset to grow. And in 2015, I did the Goldman Sachs 10K SB, that stands for 10,000 Small Businesses Program at Babson College, and talked to some mentors and advisors. And that's when my company that was already at like 1.5 million in revenue, that's when it started growing by 65% year after year. And so if you wanted to just encapsulate the why, it was my readiness plus going for really good information in the form of courses, mentorship, advisement. So as this is growing and it's getting bigger, you're experiencing more success 
Did you ever look back and think about where you came from during all that the time? time? I still do all the time. And it drives my daughter crazy because <laughs> my it. mentality is, oh my God, I have a best-selling book as of the Wall Street Journal and USA Today list. Like that isn't for me. I'm just mm. the little girl from 29th Street. And she's like, oh, when are you going to realize you're not the little girl from 29th Street anymore? You're, you know, well-known, very successful. And I know those things, but I am the little girl from 29th Street still. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I talk to people about this all the time. It's kind of almost this imposter aspect of things like, well, this shouldn't be for me. I mean, look where I came from, Des Moines, Iowa, right? Like yeah. nobody does this. Right. From, and yeah. I come from a family of writers, excellent writers, much mm. better writers than I am. And now I'm an award-winning best-selling author. And, you know, my grandmother wrote seven books for a, a traditional publisher. My dad's a poet and an excellent writer. My daughter's a writer. And it feels like, well, you know, I kind of, in my mind, think, well, I'm not really the writer in the family, but I have to stop doing that. I am a writer in this yes. family of writers, and I have done these, I've achieved these things. Most definitely. It's, uh, it's amazing to talk to people. That's why I like doing this, who are very successful and doing different things, because it's like you said, it's hard to judge something when you just see two people out mm -hmm. and you see this kind of veneer, this, this curtain and never tells a story. And someone may say, well, look at all these, all this revenue. Look at all yeah. this stuff. They would never see the things you feel about yourself. Right. And the insecurities and the imposter feelings that someone may have or may not mm -hmm. have. I have them all the time. I push past them faster and easier now mm. but they that doesn't keep them from popping up yeah is i wonder like where do you see this going from here you've done all this stuff how do you continue to push forward and continue to work on yourself when mm -hmm. these things happen that you don't have this feeling very much well i'm always working on myself i am definitely an avid lifelong lifelong learner but now I think it's the time for me to give back to other people, uh, not necessarily always reaching down and pulling people up, but even reaching out and, and, you know, I'm helping entrepreneurs with their um, endeavors, trying to teach them the things that I didn't have access to when I was, you know, first starting the business. Now also teaching people how to write, publish and market their own books specifically their life story, because I think that's really important. I think people that want to write a book about a subject matter that they're an expert at is fine too. But the reactions I'm getting to my life story are so passionate and so robust. I'm not sure I would be experiencing that if I wrote a how-to book on how to scale and grow your business by 50% <laughs> or more. I don't know. I haven't done it yet. But yeah. I'm guessing that people are more aligned with who I am as a person because in the book, they get to know who I am. Yeah. Like I, there are things in the book I never told my best friend or my therapist, but right. I decided it was just fine to publish on paper yeah, why not? and audible for everyone to listen <laughs> to. You know, it's a different approach. <laughs> Those things. 
talk to me a little bit about entrepreneurship. Is it In for general? everyone? Is it for everyone? Oh, no, 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 no. It is not. Listen, entrepreneurship, it's, it's more than just buying, acquiring, or inheriting a business and running it, right? That's a job. And, you know, being a business owner doesn't mean that you're an entrepreneur, right? If mm. you're an entrepreneur, you're not risk adverse, right? You are, you are okay with risks. You are probably looking for different opportunities all the time. And I think it's um, a personality trait hmm. in there. So, you know, I'll, I'll give an example. My ex-husband's an architect, as I mentioned before, and he worked at a big architecture firm and, and you know, quite a few. Then he was laid off in the, you know, 2008 horrible time. And he started to work for himself. And he's a talented architect, I think. But he's not a business person. He's not an entrepreneur. And so um, I thought he would be better suited um, working for someone else. And I do think there is a structure. There's, there are people that need that already built in structure or they want it. Um, and then there are people like me that I am not employable by anybody. I mean, listen, I have a lot of clients, right? I have a lot of bosses, but to, to consider myself in a day-to-day -day job working for another person as my VP or my CEO or whatever, it's unfathomable. <laughs> and perhaps that is a trait of an entrepreneur is that you just, you wouldn't survive working yeah. within another organization. Now, but at some point, obviously when you were struggling and uh, really early in your life, you did work for other people, not mm -hmm. the things you wanted to do. Was that valuable? Absolutely. I learned so much. And I actually loved a lot of the jobs that I did. I was, I didn't become an entrepreneur, or open my own business because I hated working for other people, but my desire for creating my own thing, um, outnumbered the safety of a paycheck of a salary of the benefits, right? My creative brain was just too, I was indulgent to it. Yeah. It's interesting. I had the same reason for, for a long time, I worked for a really good company and uh, life was very comfortable for me. And yeah. I kind of didn't like that at some point. And, but I felt I just wanted to have a different vantage point of life. Um, but I never considered myself someone who would like end up owning like three businesses. Like, I don't know. It's just, even now I don't really think about it that much. I'm like, it's just the version of life. I'm, this is like the 2.3.0 version <laughs> doing right. Who knows? I don't think I would ever go back, but like, you know, things are different. Um, what do you think about people who maybe never have had the opportunity to work for someone else in an organization, mm -hmm. just kind of straight going to owning something? Is there a conflict with that or maybe I, I mean, don't know. they're missing out on um watching how other people lead and how mm. other people operate their businesses but if you are an entrepreneur um there is access to other entrepreneurs um i'm an entrepreneur's organization which i love there's ypo there's vistage there's many different um routes but looking at how other people are doing what they're doing is really important of course, most yeah. definitely. Have you Experiencing ever... it as an employee, yeah. I think is really important. I treat my employees 
like I wanted to be treated. Yes. And and often I was treated well for the most part. Uh, but if I hadn't been an employee, I don't think I would have been able to understand empathetically what they might be going through. Yeah, most definitely. Have you ever had someone who really badly wanted to be an entrepreneur and you just, just didn't see it in them? I haven't, but they haven't come into my realm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen that. I mean, what is successful? Is it revenue? Is that a percentage of gross, right? You, it, I guess it depends on how you define success. Well, what's the definition you see from a lot of people? To, what is an, a successful entrepreneur? Yeah. What's the definition that you most commonly see among people you work with? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, revenue is definitely an indicator. Mm -hmm. The gross profit, which we don't talk about, or the gross income, the net income, mm -hmm. we don't talk about. It's taboo. That is a great indicator of success and your ability to lead um, happy employees, which again, you don't really have access to, except for if you're like combing through glass door. Um, I think the ultimate success for me as an entrepreneur is that I get to be my creative self fully and I get to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. Yeah. So my revenue is going to fluctuate. I mean, it fluctuated during the, the pandemic. Yep. And um, so the success for me is being consistent, being happy with being, you know, being happy with the ups and downs of the business. I think yeah. everyone would define it differently. Yeah, it's interesting in our society. I always tend to think that it's very monetary for a lot, for most people. I mean, it's like when somebody says, well, it's not about the money. You ever hear an athlete saying it's not about the money? It's usually always about the money. Or yeah, but I will <laughs> say, you know, for me, um, I could have a $50 million business and I might be miserable. I could have a billion dollar business and I might be just fine. Like it, for me, it really is the more, the most I get out of um, being an entrepreneur is the pride in creating. And um, it has very little to do with how much money is flowing down to me. In addition, as an author, yeah, I like to see the numbers. I like to see that, you know, we sold 6,000 or more yeah. books but it's not the money that's driving me. It's the impact that I'm making. And, you know, I, I may be impacting people and I'll never hear of it, but mm -hmm. some people are reaching out and what they're showing me is way more uh, valuable to me than the six to $9 I make on a book. Yeah. What's the hardest lesson an entrepreneur has to learn? or may learn in their, may learn in their journey. Yeah. I think the hardest lesson to break free from is you got to detach your ego eventually in order to scale and grow your company. You have to step back and become the visionary and um, not work in your business day to day. And some people want to be the worker. Some mm. people want to have a job in their business, but you can't, you can't scale and grow if you're working day to day in the marketing and the sales and the managing of people of your business. And also if you're building a company to sell eventually, and even if you're not willing or not thinking about selling, something may happen in your life 
where you need to sell. So your business better be in the best shape possible, right? In order to sell it. And in being the best shape possible, you can't be responsible for more than 30% of managing people, of sales and of marketing. Um, you can be, you're just going to be acquired or bought for much less. What do you say, like, let me piggyback off of what uh, you just said. So what do you say to people who are not inclined to want to scale their business or have this mm -hmm. big growth and they just like to work in it? They just like to have their own thing. Absolutely fine. There is nothing wrong in working day to day in your business. If you love it, if it's really rewarding to you, there's, yeah, there's no need to scale and grow a business if you don't want to. Makes me almost think of like, you ever seen these restaurants that are around for like 30, 40 years and, there, and there's not like a plan to have another restaurant. It's just mm -hmm. like that one place and the same people are working there, the generations. I always think there's something beautiful about that in some yeah. way. You know, yeah, especially in food business where the yeah the rate of profit is very low. Yes, the right? margins are crazy. Four like, to twelve percent, <laughs> probably. I mean, I think I asked somebody recently what the average gross or the net income of a restaurant is, and they're like, depends, but six six percent is good. Yeah. I'm like, or not like, good, but average. I'm like, why would anyone <laughs> even bother? And the reason why they would, um goes back to a lifestyle business. Yeah. It pays for their lifestyle. There's not, not much more, you know, fat on the bone, meat on the bone. And that might just be fine for them. Yeah. I think there's something amazing about that because I think sometimes it's, it feels that it's always about growth and sometimes maybe it's not. And sometimes it is, you know, it's, yeah. To each I, his own. Yeah, I don't have any beautiful. problem with an entrepreneur or business person running their business at a level that's comfortable to them and not expanding it. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing to say. I think sometimes people get pushed until you have to just always be running and push and push and push. Yeah. And this world's full of different people. Remaining flat, except for considering inflation, sure. is, is fine. I've never heard that from someone. <laughs> that's really i haven't I love really either that. but maybe some of those restaurants <laughs> that you're that mentioning have that mentality yeah i mean it's a, it would make sense that you got to have different aspects of all things in life you know if everybody was reaching towards one thing where's the variability the diversity and yeah. different products and restaurants i know so many people who open restaurants and did it for a long time i i still think i don't understand this thing i that's like restaurants but I don't That's get blood, like the sweat and tears. Yeah. I don't ever want to own one myself. You're like there all day, like yeah. literally there, like every day. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. So, what do you think is the future of uh, entrepreneurship as you see it? Like as we project in the future, obviously it's mm -hmm. speculation. In your mm -hmm. point of view, where are we going? What do you think? Well, hopefully, it is increasing. So I remember in the eighties and nineties, I didn't hear the word entrepreneur. Yeah. I know it was in existence, but it, it also wasn't terribly um, sought after, highly sought after. In fact, if somebody didn't have a regular traditional job or didn't own like a family business, they called themselves an entrepreneur. It was kind of like saying, well, I'm between jobs, right? <laughs> it wasn't very sexy. And now it's very hot, 
right? To be an entrepreneur. And I think a lot of people graduating from high school don't necessarily need to go to a four-year college, Mm -hmm. right? They might want to go to a vocational college. They might want to go to junior college. They may want to just get experience in uh, in the world. But I wish that, and I hope that entrepreneurship is taught as an opportunity that you could choose. Yeah. But it's definitely not in high school. There's not a flag waving uh, at every school saying, okay, entrepreneurship is a choice. So is the ROTC. So is junior college. (laughs) So is four-year college, Yeah. right? You could be a dentist. It's not a job choice. No, it's not. And I think also maybe how we are projecting it feels like the most grandiose version of it that you're going to be this person that creates this billion dollar unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> and like, it doesn't give you like the levels of it. It doesn't say though, maybe you will be right. the one that's like flat. Maybe you'll be kind of mid-level. Maybe you'll be yeah. successful, not super wealthy. It just tells you like, you're going to be like this thing. You got to shoot for this thing. And I think it does a disservice. I for agree. That. I agree. So hopefully that we would have something in a curriculum. I mean, hell, we need to f- teach people how to take care of the money. I mean, we're not even doing that. <laughs> in these that is true. That is true. <laughs> I mean, now that you say it, I should probably go and, and volunteer at the uh, high schools uh, around me and, and give a talk. I don't know. Will I upset their parents? Will I up? <laughs> would it be a huge upheaval for the curriculum and the uh, school? Yeah. I don't maybe and you know it sounds like logical like don't let that natasha miller in she's going to fill your head with fluff like like logical information how dare you (laughs) give me logical things to better my life no (laughs) (laughs) you never know in schools now you might be like don't come in here i don't want you teaching my child about finances (laughs) and entrepreneurship (laughs) and you can have your own job no (laughs) sounds absurd but it I does. guarantee you somewhere that's a thing. Yeah, I, somewhere I'm that's sure. a thing. It's yeah. for sure. Well, uh, Natasha, thank you so much for your time. Really thank appreciate you. it. You're just a lovely person. You seem like oh, so down to earth, easygoing. Yeah, uh, that Midwestern uh, foundation will never leave me. Yeah, well, that's a good thing. And uh, <laughs> what an example of perseverance and believing in yourself and uh, helping others. So uh, I know this will help a lot of other people, of course. And thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So tell us before we go, tell everybody where they can contact you and the whole thing, you know, just do the role. Go straight to do not stop before you go to official Natasha Miller.com. Official. (laughs) I know there's a whole reason. If anyone wants to know why my URL is that you need to DM me, I'll tell you the story, but it's a secret secret not to be told here that's how it works (laughs) (laughs) natasha miller everyone thank you so much